Good morning, everybody. It's good to uh, be with all of you here today. My name is Mike, and I have the uh, great honor of opening the Word of God with you. And as you can see by the graphic on the screen there, we are starting our Advent sermon series. Uh, I want to thank Morgan Johnson, who uh, does those graphics for us. Uh, I think she outdid herself on that one. I dabble in graphics from time to time, but that is well beyond the, the scope of my uh, abilities. Uh, so as you can see here, we're going to be looking at Jesus in the Old Testament. And we're going to take five weeks to look at the five uh, major sections of the Old Testament. You have the law, then you have the historical books, the wisdom literature, and then the major and minor prophets. So five weeks, five sermons, where we're going to find Jesus appearing in each of those sections, if you will, of the Old Testament, well before he appeared as the babe in the manger in Bethlehem. So today, we are in the law. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3, a very familiar passage today. So if you want to turn there, you can. Uh, but in order to set that up, to kind of set the backdrop for the text, I want to share with you a, a story that's in a, a book called The Serpent of Paradise by Erwin Lutzer. And he tells this story in the book about a construction company who was uh, inviting bids from contractors to do work on a, on a major upcoming building project. And all things being equal, the construction company would uh, go with the contractor who submitted the lowest bid. And the bids, though, were to be submitted in secret, meaning none of the contractors would know what the other contractors had submitted in terms of, uh, of a figure. So on the last day of accepting bids, uh, a particular contractor comes into the construction company's uh, office, uh, comes into the president's office uh, with his bid application in hand. And he found that there was nobody in the office. The president was nowhere to be found. All that was in the office was this big mahogany desk. And on the desk, he saw a stack of bids from various contractors. And he glanced at the, uh, the desk and he saw right on top was uh, a bid from his major competitor except sitting right over the, the figure, right over the dollar amount, was a can of soda. And he, all he needed to do was to be able to slide the soda, lift it up, see the number, then submit his bid just under that, and then win the multi-million dollar building project. So he felt the temptation. And he would, he would pace back and forth in the office. He, he's wrestling with this. He knows he's not supposed to do this. So he knows this is something that's unethical. But he's looking around. He's listening. And then he decides to go for it. He goes to the desk and he goes for the can. Except the can was not what it appeared to be. He lifts the can really quick to look at the figure and out of the bottom of the can came hundreds and hundreds of BBs that fell all over the desk, <laughs> spilled onto the floor, a loud, raucous sound. 
that everyone in the office knew what had happened, that he had failed the test. He had failed the test. One decision, one subtle action, lifting a can. That's all he did. But he knew it was forbidden. And, and when he did that, there were major unintended consequences that came along with it. So likewise, in Genesis chapter 3, we see Adam and Eve. One decision, one subtle action, taking of some fruit and biting into it. But in, in so doing, that thing that they knew was forbidden, they released an avalanche of unintended consequences that lead us all the way up to today. So there's a, there's a parallel there. So that, that huge mess that the contractor you know, created, similar to the mess that Adam and Eve created, and we see that in Genesis 3. So let's take a look at the mess of Genesis 3. If you have your Bible, I ask you to take that out. Uh, we will have the verses on the screen. And if you would, please stand. So we're going to hear from God through his word. Genesis 3, we read here from the ESV, and the Word of God says the following. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit. And ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Verse 8 And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Verse 14, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. And dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. 
He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The word of God, let's pray. Lord God, I come to you in the name of your Son, the one who has died for our sins, who lived for us, who died for us, and brought us into a right relationship with you. And Lord, my sin, as David said, is, is ever before me. Lord, and I, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. Your mercies are new every day because we need them every day. And so I ask that you would not hold my sin against me and against the proclamation of your word, that you'd move me aside and all the mess and garbage that I bring to this, that you would speak directly to your people through your word using me. Would you do that, please, Lord? And give us ears to hear that which you desire to communicate. We ask in the mighty, matchless name of your Son, the Lord Jesus the Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. <clears throat> well, let's, um, let's begin with the context here. We're going to build to verses 14 and 15. Because if, you, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, I, I'm sure you've heard those words before. You've read that in Genesis chapter 3 before. Because that chapter right there, and we just read a portion of it, is extremely important. I think you could argue that it is one of, if not the most important chapters in all the Bible. Because if you don't get Genesis chapter 3 right, the rest of the Bible makes no sense. Uh, all of human history makes no sense, right? Our current world makes no sense. And our own lives would make no sense if we fail to grasp what is being communicated in Genesis chapter 3. So verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Both Revelation 12 and Revelation 20 identify Satan as that ancient serpent. That's who's in view here. It's Satan. It says he's crafty. He's sly. He's cunning. He is sneaky. And Satan would like nothing more than for us in our pretentious intellectual posturing to deny his existence. Many people do. Oh, that's just some foolish fairy tale, talking snakes, Satan... Just, they, they chalk it up to Aesop's fables and mythology. But for those who deny Satan's existence, I would say he's got you right where he wants you. Right there, to deny that he exists. I think you are one of the most susceptible to his wily ways. So he comes to Eve in the form of the, of the serpent, and he seduces Eve with two things. One, a question, and two, a contradiction. Let's look at him. He said to the woman, that's Eve, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? There's the, quote, innocent question. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the tree or the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. 
See, not only should we not take away from the word of God, nor should we alter or change the word of God, we ought not add to it either. And that's clearly what Eve has done here by saying, neither shall you touch it. That is adding to God's words. But then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Direct contradiction. Absolutely clear contradiction. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And people sometimes get hung up on the fruit, right? Uh, what was it? Was it an apple? Was it the, the, the fruit? It's not about the fruit. The, the, the fruit is merely the opportunity to either trust or doubt what God has said. That, that's really what's going on here. There's a dividing line. Either you believe, obey, and trust God over here, or you disbelieve, rebel, and doubt God over here. The fruit is just the means by which you demonstrate which side of the line you're on. Verse 6 says this, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Eve did the very thing that she was told not to do. They had one job in the garden. Don't eat of that tree. And they did. And a fallout of biblical proportions ensued from there. The fallout, the implications, the unintended consequences, too numerous to mention. Because everything changed at that point. She lifted the can and the BBs all poured out. And she gave some to her husband, who was where? Right there with her. Lest us guys be like, yeah, Eve. Eve, we'd still be in the garden if it wasn't for Eve. Yeah, Adam's right there, and by all accounts, doing what? Nothing. Nothing. Sometimes we think, well, I'm all right. I, I'm not sinning. I'm not actively sinning. There are sins of omission, and Adam's guilty. Saying, no, 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 Eve, that's not how this is going to go down. He's just, yeah, go ahead. You eat, and then I'll go ahead and eat and join in in the rebellion. Verses 7 and 8. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And this is the pattern, is it not? I don't care if you're Adam and Eve in the garden or if you're you and me in the year 2023, we sin, we run from God, we hide from God, as if that's even possible, right? But in our foolishness, that's what we do, and we seek to cover up that which we have done. And God would be perfectly just if he just let them go. Just let them go. I told you not to do it. You did it. I told you the consequences, that's it. Hands off. Physical death, spiritual death, ultimately eternal death. Game over. 
And, God, and that's not a blight on God's character whatsoever. He laid it out. He told them very clearly. But is that what God did? It's not what he did. He pursues. God pursues. Praise God for verse 9. I think this is the first glimmer of the gospel. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Let me just pause there before we get to verse 10. I wonder how many Christians who love Jesus, who read that, and they say, and the Lord God called to the man after he had sinned and said, where are you? And they think, uh-oh, that is not an uh-oh verse. The uh-oh verse is God just lets him go, and he doesn't do anything about it. And just, you made your bed, go lie in it. No, God comes for them. It's not an uh-oh verse. It's a praise God verse that he pursues the rebel sinner. That's what's going on here. In verse 10, and he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. This is Adam. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. My friends, God is the first missionary. He, we sin. He pursues and I don't care if it's God in Genesis or it's Jesus in the Gospels. God came to seek and to save the lost. That's, that's our God. He pursues. He doesn't just let Adam and Eve go. He goes looking for them. And he has some questions for them. Starting with Adam. Where are you in verse 9? Then in verse 11, more questions. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? In verse 12, Adam responds. And this is classic. And I heard chuckling when I read it because you know what's coming here. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. That is about the worst answer that Adam could have given. I mean, the only thing good about it is that he did admit that he ate it. Even like, I don't know, what do you talking about? Fruit dripping from his chin. Like, he admitted it, but he, in a single statement, he blames both the woman and God. Now, now in the garden, there's not a whole lot of, there's, it's not populated yet. It's animals. Uh, Eve, Adam, and there's God. In a single statement, Adam offends two there. I mean, like, the, the last thing, if I'm asked a question, the last thing I want to do with my answer is offend both God and my wife in one fell swoop. And that's what Adam does here. That's what he does. He just couldn't have done any worse. So God says, all right, let me go to Eve. Let me give her a crack at it. And he asked her a question. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now we get the animal involved. Okay, so now we blame. What's going on here? Projecting onto another. Blame shifting. Pointing the finger elsewhere other than where it needs to be pointed making excuses, the devil made me do it. The woman who you gave me, God, she made me do it. It's her fault, and it's your fault for making her. Maybe you should have made a better version of her. 
I mean, this is, in essence, what's being said here. Blame shifting at its best. And again, humanity has not changed much since the very beginning. Do we not do the same thing? Instead of taking ownership, we take to blame shifting. It's someone else. I'm a victim. It's somebody else's fault. See, owning our garbage is the first step to healthy wholeness, reconciliation, forgiveness of sins. It's the very first move you make. But how many people do that? Yeah, I got mad, and I yelled, and I sinned, but you made me mad. Men who beat their wives are famous for this. Yeah, I sinned, but you made me do it. It's the same thing. Same thing that Adam's doing, playing the same card. Nothing has changed. Nothing new under the sun when it comes to sinful humanity. And you can read all about how God deals with Eve and Adam in verse 16 and following, but this gets us right to where we need to be in verses 14 and 15. Let me read them again to you. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So Satan, a spiritual being here, is using a physical serpent to entice, to, as the earthly agent to tempt Eve. And so in verse 14, we have the curse of the serpent. And to curse means to, to proclaim or pronounce affliction or torment upon someone or something. That's a curse. And I want you to notice how God deals with the serpent in a manner unlike how he dealt with Adam and Eve. There's no questions asked here. There's no dialogue back and forth. He's not working with the serpent. He's pronouncing judgment. God does all the talking. The serpent was running his mouth pretty good earlier in the chapter. Now it's been stopped. He says nothing. God says, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. You know, some people have concluded here that uh, prior to this curse that, you know, serpents had legs on which to walk on, and they say, you know, the the serpent was uh, altered anatomically. Uh, I, I don't know that you can draw that conclusion from the text. I mean, Hebrew scholars, of which I am not one, are like, yeah, you're kind of going too far with that. Uh, but I, I see why some people make, make that argument. I don't think you can make the case either way based upon the text itself. But here's what's abundantly clear. God is bringing the serpent low. He's bringing him down. He says, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Again, not to be taken literally here. Snakes, serpents, they don't eat dust. They eat mice and other rodents, which I, I know, unfortunately, all too well. Uh, in college, I, I roomed with a guy who uh, he owned a massive snake, and he kept the snake on the dresser in our room, you know, in a glass case. 
Like, I roomed with Snake Guy in college. And I should have gone to the admissions department right away, but I didn't. And, uh, you know, I, you know, and I, I didn't sleep very well that year, that semester, because, you know, it's college, depraved college students out getting drunk. I'm thinking they're going to come home. I'll be asleep. They're like, yeah, let's go get the snake, put it on Bongo's chest or something, <laughs> which Praise the Lord. Thank you, God, for your provision and protection that that didn't happen. But just the thought in my mind kept me awake at night. But my, my buddy, my roommate, would go out and buy live mice. And uh, this was a big hit in the dorm. Everybody came at feeding time when he would feed live mice to this snake. And I was like, you guys are sick. Like, this was not, this, I exited stage right. I was out of there. I found that whole thing highly disturbing, but they're college kids. They loved it. But this is what snakes eat. They eat mice, rodents, not literally dust. What God is doing here is he's using a figure of speech. If you've read through the Old Testament, you've seen multiple times. I think it's Psalm 72, uh, Isaiah 49, talks about eating dust, licking the dust, what is meant by that figure of speech? Utter defeat. Utter defeat. Let me give you Micah chapter 7. Speaking here of enemy nations. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Licking the dust, suffering loss, defeat. You know, we hear this today. You hear it in the sports world. A team will lose. You know, they, they bit the dust, right? Uh, the rock band Queen, another one bites the dust. Genesis 3, Right? And as kids, when we rode our BMX bikes, you know, you're racing with your friends, you say what? Eat my dust, right? All allusions to this phrase here. So that's the concept. The serpent has become a symbol of Satan's defeat. Whenever you see a, a snake slithering on the ground, you should remember this text, that Satan is defeated. He's done. He, it may look like he's winning, and at times, that does look like what's going on. But when, he, when Satan goes head-to-head -head with God, Satan takes the L every single time, without fail. Because this isn't his only rebellion. If you remember, he rebelled prior to this. This is the physical garden. In the spiritual heaven, Satan led a revolt there. Right, And many commentators believe you can go to Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 if you want to read about the five I wills of, of Satan in his pride. He didn't want to be with God. He wanted to be God. And God says, no, there's only one God and I'm him. There's no room for multiple gods. You're out of here. And so it might have looked like Satan won because what? He took a third of the angels with him. We can deduce that from Revelation chapter 12. But God says, no, 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 you're out. And yes, those angels became demons and, and were sent here to earth where now he appears in the physical garden where it looks like, again, he's won. 
right? He, he lies, he deceives. Simple questions, contradictions, and he got them to sin. He, Satan got them to bite, quite literally, right? And it looks like Satan had won. But God says, no, I always win. And he does. If you take nothing else from this today, when God, God's a winner. I don't know that that's ever been said before, but God wins all day, every day. He never takes a loss. And so, as long as there's snakes on the ground, crawling on the ground, they're always going to be this visual symbol of God's victory and Satan's defeat. But God's not done yet, though, because we have verse 15. Great verse, controversial verse. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. See, verse 14 was the curse of the natural serpent. Verse 15 is the curse of the supernatural Satan. And the text says, I will. God says, I will. This is the divine initiative. God's not playing around here. Again, no questions are asked. There's no discussion ensuing. God takes total control of the situation, exercising his sovereignty, his authority, his power over this whole enterprise. And he's pronouncing things. He's declaring things. He says, I will put enmity, conflict, hostility between you, that's Satan, and the woman. See, God makes a declaration to Satan. He says, you may have thought you won here. You did. You got him, you got him to sin. You did. You may have thought you won yourself a friend. To the contrary, you won for yourself an enemy. Because I'm going to put hostility and conflict between you. And I think this is the second glimmer of the gospel here. Because they did sin. And Eve, I think, as, as these words are being uttered by God to Eve... Uh, I think Eve is representative here. Uh, Genesis 3 is going to go on in, I think, verse 20 to say that she's the mother of all the living. That's us. So we have a, we have a, a mother, if you will, an original mother. So she's representative of the of human race. And I understand Adam's the federal head. I get that. But I'm, I'm just trying to, to understand what's going on here between, you know, the enmity that exists there for there to be enmity between us as humanity and Satan, that means we become friends of God. We, we get brought into God's team. That's why I say this is the second glimmer of the gospel. Seems to me this is the first indication of God changing someone. He's making a change here where instead of them listening to the voice of lies from the father of lies, instead listen to the voice of truth from a God who cannot lie. It's a radical change, but God is able to do it. He has the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness available to dispense as he sees fit. Because that's what happened to you and me, didn't it? We were following the, the, the power of the prince of the airwaves, right? The, the, the power of the air, Satan, and obeying him, uh, living for ourselves, following in Satan's pride right? But now God has changed you, right? He's changed me. And we seek to obey God now, not Satan. That's why we have a common enemy. 
Yes, the world. Yes, the flesh. But also the devil. Because God has made us his friends and he put enmity between us and Satan. And we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He did that. That's Romans 5.1. And Romans 5 goes on to say in verse 10, For if while we were enemies, you sin, you set yourself up as an enemy of God against him. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. That verse right there will make a great email address. Shout out to Elder Jim Benna. I said that for his sake. That's his address. But in Genesis 3.15, the enmity exists. He says, between you and the woman. I'm going to put it there, God says. Between your offspring and her offspring. Two offsprings. All right, this is where things get a little complicated and the debate ensues. You have Satan's offspring and you have Eve's offspring. And the questions, if you've ever studied this passage, the question is, who are the respective offsprings? Are they individuals or are they uh, corporate? Is it, is it a collective or is it both, individual and collective? If it's an individual, who is it? If it's collective, who are those who make up the group? These are the questions that surround this. And I'm going to give you some thoughts. I'll tell you where I came down on this. Uh, but I would encourage further study because things do get crazy complex when you get into like Hebrew linguistics and the nuances there and hermeneutical principles. It gets really, really complicated. But here's, here's what I think we know for sure. Right? Satan is no progenitor. He's not somebody who produces physical offspring, right? He's not, he doesn't have physical descendants, but he has loads of spiritual descendants, spiritual offspring. And I will make the case from the Bible. See, anyone who follows after Satan and obeys him and follows Satan rather than following God, the Bible calls a child of the devil, child of Satan. That's, that's unbelievers, that's the unconverted, those who live in rebellion to God, of which we all once were. See, there's a, there's a popular phrase that, that Christians use a lot. I hear it a lot, and it needs to go because it's thoroughly unbiblical. And they'll say, we are all children of God. And by all, I mean every person walking the planet is part of this family. We are all children of God. No, we're not. No, we're not. There are children of God and there are children of the devil. We, we all start out as the latter, but we must become the former if we are to be saved. Biblical example, 1 John chapter 3, makes it extremely clear. Notice the two groups, the distinction made here by John. By this, it is evident who are the children of God, one group, and who are the children of the devil? Another group. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And Jesus himself knew this. He declared a certain group of people children of the devil. He called them a brood of vipers, right? Who's he referring to? The Pharisees. And in John 8, 44, he says, You belong to your father, the devil. 
So Satan's offspring is anyone who makes a practice of doing the will of Satan. So now, I think a more complex question is, who is Eve's offspring? Some translations, if you have an older translation, like a King James or New King James or New American Standard, instead of offspring, you'll see the word seed. So let me read it again. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, or seed, and her offspring, or seed. And he, I think the ESV gets it right with the he, King James has it. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So who is the he spoke of here? Who is the he that is going to bruise the head of Satan? Well, I would draw upon those other translations that use the word seed there. It says the seed of the woman. Well, women don't have seeds. Men have the seed. And so... I believe, and many commentators agree, that what's going on here in this unusual wording, seed of the woman, it indicates that her offspring will not have a human father. That he will be virgin born. The virgin birth, I think, is in view here. Right? Great Christmas time message, the virgin birth. And who is that? That's Jesus Christ. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, that, that's, a, that's a Christmas text right there. The fullness of time had come. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So you're saying, Mike, it's an individual, right? And I say, yes. But I also say we must consult Romans 16.20. All right. I don't have it up on the screen. Let me just uh, turn to it. Sorry, it was uh, not something I put into my notes or in the uh, slide, but this is why it's a good reason to bring your Bible to church for such occasion as this. We covered this when we went through Romans. Paul's given his final greetings here, and he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. What's going on there? I think it's Christ who crushes the head of Satan, but it's us in him. We participate in it because what? We're the body of Christ. We're in Christ, so we play a role as well. So I guess I think it's an individual, and I think it's a collective. I think it's the church. Our Orthodox Jewish friends are not going to agree with that interpretation, and there are Christians who don't agree with that interpretation, hence the debate. But... I don't know what to do with Romans 16.20 and some of the verses I'm going to give you here in a second. So now that we know who the respective offsprings are, what does the text say? He, Christ, shall bruise your head and you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. See, the seed of the serpent struck the heel of the Savior when evil men like Judas, like the Pharisees, like the Romans all conspired against Christ. And how did they do it? deceptive they did it in a sneaky way let's just say they were crafty like their father all right john macarthur says that the the heel indicates an attack from the rear i, I he's the only person I, I saw in my reading who said that but i think he's right the heel is the back of the foot right and so when when they delivered jesus over 
Was it a frontal attack? Or was it kind of a backstabbing betrayal? It was Satan who entered Judas. And Judas, what was the, what was the sign? What was the, the signal that he gave? It was a kiss. He sealed it with a kiss. That sounds like an attack from the rear, a backstabbing betrayal. And so, yes, Jesus, his heel was bruised. He suffered. He, he died. He suffered and died. That's the bruising of the heel. And it appeared, once again, Satan had won, right? There's Jesus suffering on the cross, and he dies. He literally, he dies on the cross. But it's on the cross where Jesus took that bruised heel and absolutely crushed the head of Satan. On the cross is where this happened. A fatal blow. And it was over. A decisive victory indeed. Glimmers of the gospel have now come into full view here. As we read in 1 John 3, again, if we go back to that passage, it says there in verse 8, the latter half, the reason the Son of God appeared, right? I read in the incarnation, was to destroy the works of the devil. And I see their crucifixion. It's at the cross where Jesus destroys the works of Satan, where Jesus dies for our sins, where he pays the full penalty due to us because of our sins, where he cancels the debt that was held against us. It's on the cross where God's wrath is satisfied. And Hebrews 2 becomes a reality in our lives. Great text. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, incarnation, that through death, crucifixion, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Who's that? It's the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. My friends, we are no longer slaves. We ought not fear. We have no fear of condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There, there's no fear of punishment. Why? Because Jesus took it. He took it. We ought not say God is punishing me. If you're a Christian, you should never say that. He may discipline you, but your punishment was taken on that cross some 2,000 years ago. And Satan was utterly defeated at that time. And so we ought not fear him. Why? The verdict is in. The verdict's in. Judgment's been rendered. Satan has been tried, he's been convicted, and he has been sentenced. What remains? Execution. But his fate is sealed. He is all but over. How do I know? I've read the end of the book. I know how this story ends. Jesus wins, and you and I win in him. So, as we wrap up, from one sinner to another, let me ask you a question. It's the same question that God asked Adam in the garden. You sin like I sin. This is, the, this is what bonds all of humanity together, right? We all sin. But here's a question that should be asked. Where are you? Where are you? And don't say Living Water Community Church. I mean, I'm in church. I'm not looking for latitude and longitude. Where are you with God? 
Are you running from God? Again, I said, that's our tendency. We sin, we run from God. You should run to God, but we run from him. Are you afraid? You ought not be. It's, again, it's not an uh-oh. When God comes for you and he disciplines you and he sets you on the right and conviction sets in your heart, that, that's not uh-oh, I don't like this. You should be thanking him. He hasn't turned you over to that sin. Are we hiding in shame? We got some covering like some fig leaves up on us? Are we going to blame another? Do you own it? Do you take ownership for it? Or do you take to blame shifting? Right? Do we play the victim card? It's somebody else's fault? No, we take ownership of our own mess, our own sin, our own garbage, and we come to God with our hands up, surrendering. Just, I surrender, God. And then you can keep them up in praise to him because faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we come in that manner, hands up, saying, save me, forgive me, cleanse me. See, he said, you're either with me or you're against me. You, there, there's, there's two camps. You're in Christ or you're in Adam. There's no straddle in the fence. There's no third option. You're either with him or you're against him. And I ask you, where are you? Where are you? You either serve God or you serve Satan. You either serve the Savior or you serve yourself. You believe the truth or you believe lies. You either listen to the Father of lights or you listen to the Father of lies. You either repent or you don't. You either believe or you don't. You either go to heaven or you go to hell. The stakes are extremely high. It is a very dangerous thing to come to church and hear the word of God and not respond in the way that you should. You're given light here today. So let's remember that. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, especially when you know the way out. Stakes are extremely high. My hope is that we would choose life over death. So my question is to Living Water Community Church, where are you? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. As challenging as it may be, as hard to interpret as it may be, Lord God, I thank you for the, the opportunity to declare it. And I, I pray that we would respond appropriately, that we, we, we sin. We, we, we all sin. We all fall short of your lofty standard. But it's how do we respond? How do we react? Do we run from you? Do we revel in it? Or do, we, do we come confessing and repenting and saying, Lord, Cleanse me, renew in me your spirit, restore me to you. Lord, remind me of all that you have done for me on that cross and that we would run to you and not run from you. We thank you, Lord, that we have fellowship with you, that you've made us your friend. More than that, we're family. We're adopted into the family of God, you as our heavenly father all through the work of your son that wouldn't be possible if he didn't enter into this world some 2,000 years ago in that dirty manger in Bethlehem. 
Lord, we thank you for the incarnation. Help us to keep our eyes focused on that when all the other things in our world seek to, to distract us and take us away from that. We want to focus in on you. Lord, and as we collect this offering now, Lord, we want those funds that are so generously given by this church. This church is so generous, Lord. I tell you all the time and I tell them all the time, I'm so grateful for the generosity that you've worked into our people here. I could start naming them, it would take too long of all the ways that this church gives and gives sacrificially. Lord, we have a stewardship and it's to be taken seriously that we would use those funds appropriately, that your name would be praised, your gospel would go forth and that your house might be full. Lord, that's our prayer. We thank you, we give you the balance of this service. You are good. We love you. Amen.